Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alumless. Thank you so much for listening, for tuning in on this Friday. I am Ryan Catherwood. That, of course, sharing the screen with me is CEO, founder, Chris Marshall. Alumless is a CMAC production. And on the show, we talk about engagement strategies and higher ed advancement most of the time. Sometimes we digress into all sorts of different directions, but uh, most of the time we stay on topic. Uh, we are not live today. We try to be live most of the time. We've pre-recorded this episode, so uh, I can go on vacation, actually. Uh, I'll be publishing <laughs> this while I am returning from St. Bart's for a week with uh, the missus, which I've been looking forward to a long time. So, uh, But I'm sure there will be a vibrant conversation going on in the LinkedIn event, and uh, I'm excited for the show because we have one of our favorite people on uh, to chat advancement with us and uh, mm -hmm. Carlo in Carlo Willis. Um, Chris, how you doing today? You doing all right? Doing good. This is a, a, a dangerous week before you leave because I'm nervous. I'll be all by myself for a week. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you think that highly of me to help keep <laughs> things going. But um, yeah, we've got four days this week. I'm on a bit of a countdown, but uh, excited I about it. it. I believe it. Good for you. Yeah. Taking vacation is a good thing to do. Unplug. It's important. Yeah. Well, before we get too far into the show, I want to make sure to introduce our fantastic sponsoring partner, Protopia. We as engagement pros are always thinking about how to create more volunteer opportunities because volunteers give at two and three times the rate, and it's just a great thing to do. This is important, particularly for alumni leaders working in integrated advancement models. We're trying to create a pipeline of donors through volunteerism. At the same time on campus, students throughout the educational journey have questions and could use advice from alumni. As engagement pros were asked to figure out ways to make the alumni network more available from prospective student to former student and develop partnerships across campus that will showcase in real terms how valuable the alumni network can be. So that's what Protopia solves for. Without requiring alumni or students to sign up for another app or platform, Protopia's AI-powered technology activates alumni and turns them into volunteers in a flash. Students and alumni seeking advice are connected while removing the administrative burden of staff. <clears throat> Excuse me. Protopia is a tool you've been looking for. Visit protopia.co forward slash alumless. And yeah, you should absolutely check it out. Every time I have a conversation with Max and the Protopia team, I am awed by the potential of the technology and the way that it's already helped customers like LSE and Denison uh, really just um, scale up engagement. So we're grateful to have them on board. But Chris, uh, we're going to have a great conversation with Carla Willis, our colleague from Washburn McGoldrick. Uh, and um, we'll do our Friday cheers section at the end of the podcast. But I thought we could just kind of get down to brass tacks a little bit in the beginning of the episode and ask you, you know, What's the most difficult part about being a consultant? I want to talk a little consultant talk to to get yeah. the show going. I get, I get people ask me often about moving into consultant roles and what's that like, and 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 my um, you know the diff most difficult difficult aspect of it. I'm, in one word, it's balance. I mean, there's balancing work and personal life. You have to be able to do that well, and you could get consumed by this if you're not careful and not have any personal life. I worry about that sometimes for both of us. Um, there's also balance in the, in the sense of the work you're currently doing, you have to stay focused on, but at the same time, you have to balance the next round of work that you want to get to do later on. So there's this constant struggle between delivering and selling <laughs> work. Um, and then the other balance piece, I'll tell you this is that, and I've been focused a lot more on this lately, and you've been helpful with me on this is there's a balance between working in your business and working on your business. It's just a subtle little thing. It's literally one letter in those two, <laughs> those words, but it means a whole difference in what your company is going to look like in the long term. And um, I've spent more too much time on in the business and I'm trying to be more disciplined about working on the business. Well, it's a delicate thing when it's Chris Marshall advancement right. consulting, exactly. right? Yeah. I mean, it, the, the folks that hire Chris Marshall want to, you know, have you involved in the projects and, um, you know, it's also your the business too, which you hope to expand and uh, do some cool things. And so it, it makes sense that it's kind of hard to pick, you know, where to spend time. But almost right. always, you're going to gravitate towards the clients, right, and, and what they oh, need, not yeah. the business itself. So yeah, but, but uh, you know, you and I were together in Denver last week, and 
and I'm sitting there listening to you deliver this. And, and it occurred to me, and I said this to you when we left, I wrote it to you in your note afterwards, is it occurred to me that um, you, you don't need me there. You could do these kind of things without me. And I just got to let that happen um, and be better about um, not feeling I got to be present all the time. And I have people who are good who can do this without me there. So. So that's part of it. Well, you know, two years in, if, if it's fair to say that, like you could, you could confidently say to a client, Hey, listen, I can't be there. I'm going to send Ryan. You're not going to miss a beat. Like that means I've, you know, right. done well. I, I would add, I would add to that sentence. You're going to be better off with Ryan. <laughs> oh, well, maybe going a little too far, but I appreciate that. Uh, it's, I think we make a good team uh, going out and working with folks. And um, I really enjoyed the, the, alumni council engagement yeah. we had with the university of denver last week it was really fun yep. uh, but when i was transitioning chris from to my from my campus job and thinking about consulting you know you and i spoke a couple of times what advice do you remember giving me about what it takes to be successful as a consultant and and would you alter or change that advice now that you know i've been working with you the last couple of years we're going to ask carla the same question we're going to bring yeah, her out next this, yeah but um you know Jimmy, just sort of like summarize that advice you provided yeah. me and like, would you amend it at all? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm almost certain I told you you need three things to be a successful consultant. Um, and if I didn't tell you this, I should have, but I'm pretty sure I did. Yeah. Uh, number one, you need experience in the field just doing the work, right? You just need time under your feet and, you know, uh, having experience and in, 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 you know, running a shop, for example, is really important. Uh, that's number one. Number two, um, you need to have a network. You need to have built a network of people. Uh, you need to be a known, as much as possible, a known entity in the field or have enough people who know you who can refer you. And then the, I think I think a lot of people come to the field with those two things. That's not, those aren't, I mean, they're hard, but but yeah. you, you see a lot of people, where I see people fail is, is they don't have the third thing, which is uh, you got to be able to close. You got to be able to sell and close. The old Alec Baldwin speech where he said, always be closing. <laughs> ABC yeah. is there's some truth in that and you have to be able to close and that's hard in this business, especially when you're working with a lot of former colleagues and friends and uh, to yeah. be able to close is, is difficult. And, and, and uh, the people that figure it out and you figured it out about took, I said about 18 months, it was going to take you. You did it in about six, but you started closing your first deals and <laughs> your first big deal was about a year in, but the early ones yeah. were, were, were quicker than that, but the small, smaller ones were quicker. Uh, the, other, the other thing I would add to that advice right now is, is at some point you need to learn how to say no. Um, and there are certain clients where you say no, not now, or let me have someone else help you do it. Those are the things. And I haven't figured that part out yet. I'm still working on it, but yeah, well, it, it, it depends. It, you don't want to say no, because there's sometimes there are dry spells, right? Exactly. And, and exactly. so just, if you say no and you're like, gosh, I really wish it, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And selling, you know, we'll talk to Carla in just one last second here is, you know, I, I think that's the most daunting part because no one knows whether they can do that until they try that. Yep. yep. And you, one thing you learn really quickly is that you cannot count on any piece of business until it's signed, right? <laughs> like it cannot go on your tracker, your spreadsheet for, you know, what you're going to make until it's actually done. And um, yeah, I've gotten to the point where it's like a superstition where I don't put it in the underway sign until literally a signature happens. <laughs> Otherwise yeah. it jinxes it, I think. But you do need to track where people are in a pipeline. We do that. We do that. We do that well. All right. Let's bring out Carla Willis to the conversation. Excited, Carla, to have you join us. Carla, you are the principal at Washburn and Goldrick LLC. Welcome to the show. Great Thank to have you. Thank you. Great to be here with you, Ryan, and with Chris. Yeah. Co-principal, yeah. right, with our colleague. Actually, Ann I was going to correct you. There are yeah. actually uh, we two principals and then we have two uh, owners and managing principals. Right. So four principals. Yep. I'm one of four. One of four. Right. And we've had Bonnie and Karen on the show before, our, our good colleagues. And uh, we'll get Ann Barry on the, the show at some point real soon. But great to have you. We do a lot of work together. We do a lot of uh, retreating together and uh, work with clients through CMAC and the relationship that Chris has established with uh, Washburn McGoldrick over the years. So it's been really fun for me to 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 get to know you through Washburn and McGoldrick and um, uh, add you to the the show. So welcome. So, well, maybe we can just start sort of with a high level question. How did you get into advancement consulting, and do you do you specialize in any areas? Uh, what projects do you work on? That's a really great question, Ryan. I'd like to say that I've always taken a consultative approach to work, even when I was a chief advancement 
officer. And I would say after my first fourth chief advancement officer role, I just I decided I didn't want to serve higher ed in that way anymore. And yet I still wanted to serve and and to be able to continue problem solving, which I love doing, and to apply my 30 plus years of experience. And so I reached out to one of our co-managing principals, Karen George, and as they say, the rest is history. Um, after reaching out to her, I decided that it was a path I wanted to take, and it's it's been great. In, in our firm, we specialize in helping higher ed as well as independent school clients with comprehensive campaigns ranging from $2.5 million to $2.5 billion. And, we do internal advancement assessments of, of programs within advancement, external feasibility studies to determine if an institution is prepared and ready to conduct a campaign. We provide ongoing counsel to institutions once they're in a campaign. And we do a lot of collaborative uh, thought partnership with our clients as they work to solve today's uh, some of today's issues that are arising in, in the higher ed advancement space. And so long answer to your question, but I hope that that's oh, helpful. I like, I like that term thought partnership. I think I use that a lot when we're in conversations or sharing information with a new potential new client. So I think that's really what we do. We're somebody who can get in there and be another brain to work on a pro- problem together, try to help solve it. Exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, when you think about it, a lot of our, well, all of our clients, they're just as smart as we are, right? Amen. We're just Amen. there to add some extra thinking and and some query to help them sometimes draw the conclusions that we would tell them to do as consultants. But rather than telling them, we help them come up with with the answers through our qu- queries. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I I have as I can't talk uh, Monday morning, but. Uh, <laughs> I have a client where I have a thought partnership relationship and you know, he's in Australia. So I am working, you know, Sunday night or Monday night sometimes. And um, he's an interim director, right? So he's in a short period of time and, and the, it's really just a uh, great opportunity. I think during periods of transition, uh, yeah. particularly uh, when new people arrive, those when new leadership is there to sort of help keep things moving in the right direction as a thought partner. But Carla, maybe you could answer the question I posed to Chris a little bit earlier, which was um, advice to other people who are thinking about getting into consulting themselves, right? What have you learned as, as a consultant? You know, Chris gave me his three bits of advice. I think that they were really helpful for me to understand the, the, the runway and, and frame of mind I needed to um, be thinking about the next few years after I started. Well, the first thing I'd say before answering the question, I don't know about the two of you, but I'm probably getting a call or an email or text message a week from someone asking about and inquiring about getting into into consulting. And um, I heard I heard Chris's answers and certainly, you know, balance and, and the network are important. One of the things I try to do is it's a two part question. And the question is, what do you like about what you do now and what don't you like? And then their answers lead Mm. me to the advice that I provide. And and I say to them, if you enjoy problem solving, if you enjoy collaborative thought partnership, if you enjoy juggling lots of different balls and that no two days are ever the same, then I encourage them to consider consulting. And I, I kind of break it down into three words to help them hone in on whether it's something for them or not. I said the three most important words that you'll be thinking about every day are finding, binding, and grinding. You need to find the opportunities for, for you know, work and, and for people to work with and who need your services. You need to bind the the arrangement or you know the contractual thing and that sometimes takes a while like like Chris I never count on anything before it's inked because it, <laughs> it sometimes takes a while and then it's grinding grinding out and providing the service that you have proposed to provide so that's that's kind of how I approach that that question. Do you, how do you grind? 
Yeah, I love it. It's like the grind part, I feel like also, you know, maybe you guys can talk a little bit about it, how you got started thinking about the activity that you need to do to build your network, right? Um, as a When you're outreaching out to people, you need to introduce yourself. You know that you're not going to arrive at a scenario where the person you're talking to is going to say, oh, I have business for you today, right? You know that you're having a conversation probably about business a year from now or even longer from now, and you're just thinking about that type of activity as, you know, the, a good investment of your time. How do you guys think about that? And how should someone just starting out think about that? We're off script a little bit, but I feel like it's a good, a good piece of the puzzle to talk about. Carla, go. I, I think it's great. And, and in, so I, I said this to someone recently, the work I do now and the way I approach it isn't any different than when I was an advancement officer. We, we, we train and we talk to advancement officers about their portfolios, about always uh, doing good discovery work and always trying to uncover that next prospective donor. Well, if you substitute the word client for the word donor, yeah. it's no different. You're always doing discovery work. And just as if you were working with a donor, you may want that donor to, to close that gift this year, but it's always about their timeline of when they're ready to close the gift. The same is, it's, it's no different with, with clients. They approach you, but sometimes it's hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. And so you, you have to really exercise patience and, um, and, and always have a lot of prospective clients in the pipeline. Because none of it's going to come together at the same time. Yep. Yep. It's great. That was a, a fantastic off script answer, by the way. So I don't even want to attempt it, but I'll, I'll add a couple of practical things to it. Um, I love everything you said. Um, building relationships is part of the work we do. That's the binding part that you're and And when you're not in a formal sales conversation, staying in touch with people along the way mm -hmm. is really important. Showing up at conferences, being at, the case summit is my annual thing. I'm going to be there and I'm going to have 57 meetings when I'm there because I want to see people and check in. Um, but I'll put, put on my to teaser list um, to call people, email people, check in in between every quarter. Uh, and then I have a, a very active LinkedIn uh, presence where I, I'm constantly checking in, like, liking and following and sending people articles. And so those are the things that keep the buying going when you're not in a sales conversation. And it's, it's a practical piece, but it's important. This show is part of what we do. Not, not only are you a thought partner as a consultant with a client, you're also a thought leader in providing you know, we bring on really smart people to make us look good, Carla. So that's why you're here. <laughs> so that we can provide thought leadership in our industry. And people started to form a habit of watching this show. And I have several clients right now who have hired new people and they've made it a requirement for them to watch all 37 of our episodes because they think it, those those that's 37 great. hours are, are good baseline training for somebody moving into this role. So well, all those yeah. things add up together. That's great. And Chris, you you touched upon something that's really important that I failed to mention, and that is using LinkedIn as a tool. Yeah, yeah. I am on LinkedIn every day. I do the things that you share, but I also look for people who are newly appointed in, mm -hmm. in chief advancement officer roles, people who I know. And I'll reach out and simply congratulate them yep. and, and suggest to them that when they get grounded, I'll do it in a me private message. When they feel grounded in their new role, I'd love to touch base with them to hear how it's going. And then right. I certainly don't wait for them to, to connect with me. I put it on a little, a little chart, a little calendar, and I'll reach out to them yep. at about that three month right. point. And often that leads to new business. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it's the, the key is though, is the timing of that. You got to wait till the fire hose dies down a little bit. Exactly. Three months, and then you go in and say, Hey, what, what are your pain points? How can, how exactly. can we help? It's, it sounds a little bit like all anything about it is, is that you want to go in and sell a, close a deal. It's not. It's it's a relationship oh. you're going to have with that people, that person. And I tell people all the time, continue to ask if the contract is done or even if we're not in a contract, keep asking me questions, staying in touch. And I, I like to say, I joke around and say, I'll, I'll tell you when it gets to a point where I think you owe me money. Other than that, just keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you when it gets too much. And I guess it's a little bit different. I mean, it is sales work, right? Um, but it's a little different. It's more like major gift officer work than it is about, you know, um, 
annual giving calling, right? Right, uh, exactly. Right. That's a good way to think of it. Yeah, you know, it's you're you're definitely not pestering people, right? Mm-hmm. And in the way that you know, your the phonathon might call four times a year, right? When it comes to sort of sales, right? It's a different type of sales work. But um, Carl, I'm gonna I want to ask you. I've learned a ton from you, Bonnie, Karen, and and others in the firm on the fundraising major gift campaign side of the house. But but I also learned from you when we talk about alumni engagement. I'd love to get your thoughts on how you think of alumni engagement in the in the realm of advancement and how we think about what role alumni engagement plays. What's your first thoughts that come to mind when you think about alumni engagement? So I would say I have always seen alumni engagement as an essential rung in the advancement ladder. And early on in my career, I was in the minority because it was, you know, separate. Alumni engagement is here. Well, back then, alumni relations is here and fundraising is here. But I've always seen it as connected. And I'm so pleased that we are seeing more and more advancement models where that connection is there because it's it's an essential rung. Um, I don't believe an institution can have a sustainably strong advancement program without a strong alumni engagement program that is connected and collaborative. Yep. When you're providing advice uh, to clients and you see something happening at, a, or at, a, at an institution, what's the thing, what's the trigger that, that propels you to say, I think you may need to invest in alumni engagement mm-hmm. here. Is there something that happens or a pattern or does yeah. it depend on the client? I think it's several things, Chris. Um, I think first of all, when I see a low number of engagement, alumni engagement staff compared to benchmark peers, when I see low alumni participation rates, and I'll tell you, I hate that word participation, and I'm using it only because it's what what we use, it have been using, but I'm so glad to see it transitioning to engagement rates. So when I see a low uh, percentage there. When I see an insufficient number of prospective donors who are in discovery and in that category of relationship with the institution. Um, And when I see a major and transformational gift pipeline that isn't large enough to support campaign dollar goals. Um, Mm. and, And then also, I think finally, if I see, and I'm working on a campaign and we're looking at who the potential volunteer leaders might be, and they're the same as the last campaign, because yeah. that means there hasn't been any any building or development of new relationships with, with alumni, that's when I suggest applying more resources. Yeah. So any one or all of those, yeah, those, those, those great. things. I'll, I'll add two more. I loved all your answers. I'll, I'll give you two more that I look for. And sometimes I look, if I find that there's an absence of these things, it tells me as much and there, those two things are, you mentioned one of them. When I asked, what's your alumni engagement score or your AEM, the, the case AEM, and they, they look at me or they, if they can't answer it, they look at me like I'm crazy, red flags are going off in my head, right? Yes. right? That's a sign right there. Uh, and number two is I asked for a copy before we do any project. I asked for a copy of your most recent, call it strategic or long-term plan. Not what you're doing this year plan, the longer-term plan. And I can tell you... Uh, Three quarters of the people I ask for that question don't have one of those. And the mm-hmm. quarter that do, they're more annual. Maybe a very small percentage actually have a real strategic plan. But the um, the vast majority say, we, we don't have one. We're going year to year to year. Another That's a yellow flag for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more. And the, all the more reason why they need CMAC. There you go. <laughs> CMAC and Washburn. <laughs> and Washburn. They need us both. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> there's no doubt that. There's a lot of, I can imagine a lot of triggers to say, hey, you know, alumni engagement is an investment worth making. But I, I imagine one of the biggest glaring red signs is the lack of the major gift pipeline being even close to where, you know, that needs to be to reach some of these big numbers. And, uh, you know, you've got to get individuals engaged along that pipeline and really ramp things up. But what do you think about, Carla? Do you think that's true or... Is that a major trigger for sort of recommending alumni engagement work is not having enough donors in the pipeline? Or do you think it's there's others that are more important? Well, I think 
that's an important one. But I think there are other important ones. I, I, I'm one who believes that not every alum is going to move along the continuum to become a major or principal level donor. And yet I still believe engagement of them is important because sometimes they end up providing great career advice for students or they get involved and engaged in the university in other ways. So the pathway and the continuum has multiple sort of like stop off points along the continuum that might be the best point of engagement for that particular alum. Yeah. What do you find advice that you frequently are giving? Two pieces of advice that you find commonly you're offering every advancement leader you work with. Do you see any trends in that area? Yes, I do. Lately, a lot of the advice centers around HR related matters um, and employee engagement (laughs) related matters. Um, and, and, And people are trying to hire and they're having a difficult time finding top talent. Chris, I don't know if, if you're every seeing client. that. Every, every single client. Every client. And one of the pieces of advice that I have been giving them is to hire a search firm if they're doing like large yeah, blocks of hiring. Because if you're if you're doing and partnering with your HR department, it takes a lot of time away from the other important work that needs to, to be done. Certainly the search firm can't take take on everything. You still have to be involved in the process of hiring, but getting them to help vet and and identify talent. Uh, that's one of the main pieces of advice I've been giving. And then the second is helping them feel um, as though they're not alone. Many of them feel defeated because they've had several failed searches and helping them understand that the challenges that they're experiencing are challenges across the board right now in the higher ed and independent school space. It's, it's just challenging right now to find top talent. Uh, I think there's no doubt that there's a lot of dynamics going on there. One of which we should talk about in a different episode is the move higher ed's making to have everybody back in person all the time, I think is an interesting one. Um, but, uh, there's other reasons for sure. Chris, you and Carla have worked together at Washburn McGoldrick on campaign readiness assessments and feasibility studies. How have those projects helped you become a better consultant? Uh, like I said earlier, I've learned a ton. I, I started working with Bonnie 22 years ago when she was the VP at Lehigh and I was on the alumni leader there and um, always have learned from her. I think of Bonnie as a mentor and dear friend. And every time I interact on a project with her, I get a broader and broader view of the advancement space because I came out on the alumni engagement side. I ran two shops for 12 years, seven at Lehigh, five at Cornell. And, but in both those places, I had leaders, Bonnie um, and at Lehigh and Charlie Flager at Cornell, who believed and expected and brought me into the program to build an integrated advancement model where alumni engagement plays a role in fundraising. So I've always had that lens, but it gets, gets broad. When you get into a feasibility study or a readiness assessment, I'm getting exposed to things I hadn't seen at that level before. And it's, it makes my work better in all ways. Um, and the other last thing I'll say on that is that the, the, I think there's a role for alumni engagement at any point along the way, the old notion that, you know, the, uh, a good alumni relations program will get you ready for the next or two campaigns from now. I think that's still true, but I think a good alumni program can help right now. You think about the cycle, you think about identification, cultivation, solicitation and stewardship, I think a good alumni program should play a role in absolutely three of those four things. And maybe not ever solicit for funds, a large gift, but play a role in identifying, cultivating and stewarding those large donors. That can happen in this campaign. And a good alumni program, I think, should do that. So that's yeah. where I that, that lens has been broadened for me to think about those things in a different way. So thank you, adjust, <laughs> adjust adjust the campaign to focus on where the, they are in relation to the campaign, exactly. right? Exactly. Like, there is not just one thing, one alumni engagement strategy, which which should have these different things. It's actually really should be custom designed for philanthropic goals. But um, Carla, I've got a couple of great questions that we skipped over in this first section that I think we'll add to our bonus section. Uh, since we've reached the the top of the, the 30 show. minutes, Carl, it goes like that. It goes by really fast. Wow, I think we're we done. Focused a lot more on sort of consulting. And we've got some questions for you about some of the work that you've done. 
and again about some of the lessons you've learned. But Chris, uh, just to wrap up our live show for this week, who are we featuring next? The the wonderful, talented, and uh, super smart Kim Infanti from Syracuse University. I'm just going to say that. She's wonderful and all that, but there's a special announcement coming with that episode in the week. Yeah. Yeah, we have a we have a special edition of Alumnus with Kim. Then we'll uh, share a bit more about that. Just doing do some hinting for now. But uh, Carla, thanks so much for for being on the show. We're gonna record another great thirty minutes with you in just a moment. But thanks for listeners for tuning in, making Alumnus Thank part you of me. your work week, uh, your staff meetings, your podcast listening habits. Uh, we appreciate it, and we really enjoy doing the show to uh, add some thought partnership to the space because um i don't know we all geek out on this stuff and i think people who listen to us i think they do too right because yeah. it's all right. pretty fun wouldn't <laughs> listen if you didn't weren't also a nerd about this so uh all right well, well we'll see possible. it in two weeks uh well actually yeah it'll be in two weeks with one week actually after we publish this with yeah, kim yeah. and Fonte. all right thanks carla hey listeners Chris and I were going to record an ad discussing all the great aspects of Protopia, of which there are many, but instead we thought it would be even better to hear from one of Protopia's current partners. Here's Sally Sistar, Executive Director of Alumni Engagement at Denison University, talking about her experience with the technology. If you like what you hear, be sure to go to protopia.co forward slash alumnus and check it out. How do you see Protopia fitting into your plans? You mentioned a few ways that I might imagine it fitting in, but what do you think? It's a tremendous fit. Listen, I cannot tell you how excited I was when I took this job to know that they already had Protopia, right? It's a very, very smart decision. Um, because one, it just, you know, it with the AI technology enabled, like it takes us out of the equation, right? It is really, a great tool for alumni and students to ask those questions and be connected to, you know, the the top experts, right, or the top individuals to answer those questions for them. Um, what I've been really excited to hear about here at Denison is, you know, if that question goes to five alumni, well, all five of our graduates are answering. And then it gets into, you know, like, um, a train of communications between them and the individual asking the question. So it's really facilitating community for us in a way that we couldn't do that ourselves if we were at the helm of trying to you know, facilitate someone's question going to those individuals, right? It's just, it's automatic and that's the beauty of it. Um, the other thing I would say to you is that it is also, it's bringing people into um, it's engaging alumni that may not have engaged with us in any other way, right? But they really are appreciative that, you know, they get an opportunity to, to help another alumni um, member or help a student. Um, so I just, I mean, I can't say enough great things about what a difference maker that has been for us on the engagement level. Hey, listeners, we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the bonus section of the Alumnus Podcast. Today, we have special guest Carla Willis, who is co-principal at Washburn McGoldrick with our colleague Ann Barry, and of course, works closely with founders and uh, owners and managing principals of the firm, Bonnie Devlin and Karen George. Uh, we're glad to have you with us, Carla. Thanks for the great, lively discussion in the first half of the show. It was fun. Thanks for having me. And I'm glad to participate in the bonus part of the show. The bonus segment. The bonus. We'll start off our bonus. Maybe we can just share a little bit of your background, uh, your unique set of experiences. And then you've got a lot of great uh, broad experiences, but one that you definitely have a, a number of opportunities to work with HBCUs, both as uh, leading as the advancement chief as well as as a consulting partner and, and maybe you could share a little bit about you know some of the challenges facing HBCUs that that's a great qu question Ryan and I've been asked that question before and often what I share is the challenges 
really aren't that different. And even the day-to-day work isn't, isn't that different, especially with the environment we find ourselves in today, right? Where we have shrinking staffs and we have tightening budgets and sometimes staff who don't understand what the work entails of advancement. I think that's always been true in the HBCU environment. HBCUs have always struggled with staffing levels and you have staff doing sometimes three or four different jobs um, because of, of tight, tight budgets. But I would say that the staff within the HBCU environment, they care deeply about the institutions they serve, which is no different than in other um, advancement or, or uh, predominantly white institutions. That same care, that same love for the institution is there. In some instances, some of the staffers are uh, graduates of the institution as well. And so their love for alma mater is no different. And the other thing I would say is often campaign goals are, are lower than in some of our other institutional clients, but the work and the day-to-day work in being thought partners with them is no different. Makes makes sense to me that uh, there really wouldn't be a ton of uh, significant differences, right? In the way, but I wonder, have you seen a, a collective um, uh, sort of synergy around leadership of HBCUs trying to identify kind of common challenges or, or problems? Is there a specific sort of dialogue that's brought the community together to try to help advance HBCUs as a group? Or, or do we should we even identify schools as HBCUs anymore? Is this an is that an outdated term? Well, I, I don't think it's an outdated term. I think for those who their families have have that tradition of having attended an HBCU. There's a lot of pride associated with that. So I don't think it's an outdated term. I, I do think that the McKinsey Scott injection of funding to many HBCUs has put the type of institution more on the radar for people who look at philanthropy and and look at what's happening in higher ed philanthropy. So I think that it has caused um, other entities, corporations and foundations to see and under better understand the need that these institutions have in terms of their uh, sort of philanthropic need and, and their goals to to support the students and and the academic programs within the institutions. And so as a result of the McKinsey Scott gifts, we've seen a number of other significant gifts that have have been going to HBCUs. My hope is that it isn't just a trend and that it continues. Right. Talk about your path and and when you uh, your your employment history, I call it the crooked mile. We all sort of gone yes. through our years along the way. Tell us about yours. Mine's very jagged and, and crooked. And it's <laughs> funny, at a, at a point in my career, I ask myself, have I been a job hopper? What What is with me that I can't like keep on this straight line? So I started my career in annual giving at, at Mizzou uh, a, after having had a successful career in, in corporate America. I decided I was bored with that. I wanted to do something different. So I was the supervisor of the Mizzou Annual Fund. And shortly after taking that position, I felt like I could apply more of my corporate background in higher ed and other ways. And I decided after learning more about major gift work that it was similar, not the same, but it was similar to some of the things I had experienced related to sales and sales support in the corporate world. So that is when I decided that I really wanted to to shift gears and go off on one of those like jagged roads of my career and and try to get into major gift fundraising. And so I I left Mizzou. Uh, I left Mizzou also because I got married to someone who I met at a new employee orientation session (laughs) at Mizzou, who was also a higher ed professional. So we moved to Toledo, Ohio, and that is where I had my first major gift 
opportunity in, in, in position. And it was, it was a blast. I enjoyed it. And now but, a client of yours. Right and now, now a client of mine. Yes. Exactly. So we've come full circle. And, um, but I decided that there was something more that I wanted. It, not Nothing wrong with, with Toledo. In fact, Toledo is also my alma mater. So it was my first major gift opportunity. I graduated from there as a non-traditional student, but I decided I wanted, I wanted something more. So I took an opportunity at the University of Michigan in the law school and, and started doing law school related major gift work. I was a regional officer there focusing in the New York and Eastern Seaboard area. Learned so much while I was there about how to treat donors and, and just about the collaborative approach to, to the work. And so I did that for several years and then was approached by one of our consultants to um, do some consulting work. And that was with John Brown at the at the time. And so I, I did some work with John Brown, learned so much from John about how to be a collaborative thought partner. I think that's where I learned how, how to do that and how to do that well. And as a result of that work, one of our clients, North Carolina Central, uh, the, the chancellor was moving to Florida A&M University to become the president. And he approached me about being his chief advancement officer. And I said to John Brown at the time, I don't know the first thing about being a chief advancement <laughs> officer. What I, I can't do this job. And he that means your answer should be yes. As soon as you hear that. <laughs> and he said, yes, you can. And whatever you don't know, I'm here for you to support you. So that just points to the importance of our, of our network throughout our yeah, career. Yeah. yeah. So then I, I stayed there for several years, really enjoyed the HBCU environment, but got, got a call from Ohio State about becoming the, the second in command in the medical center um, and health philanthropy area, which was something that had always intrigued me. Mm. I said, yes, I went and I was very intentional about it because I knew that at some point in my career, I wanted to get back into consulting. I didn't know when. I didn't know like where, but I knew that it would happen. And I thought that that would make me a better consultant and and give me more experience. So I did that for several years and then jumped back into the chief advancement officer role at Kane University in northern New Jersey, very diverse campus. And that was was very fun. And I enjoyed it. And then I got a call from a search firm about an opportunity at UNC Asheville. And I had such respect and regard for the UNC system, but knew nothing about Asheville and about that institution being a a public, small liberal arts institution. And I thought, gosh, if I got into consulting, that could be helpful for me to know that liberal arts, especially the public, because most liberal arts, when you think about liberal arts, you think about private. This was public. So I took on that role. It, It was a blast. I had a great chancellor. In, in the, the person who hired me, Mary Grant, who after I was there for a year, decided to leave. Mm. And, and so when she left, for me, it wasn't as much fun anymore because she and I were having so much fun together. And I decided that um, I was ready to not do that type of work anymore. I decided I didn't want to get to know a new chancellor. I didn't want to launch a new campaign with someone new. I decided that maybe I wanted to take all of my experiences and help lots of different institutions. And so that is when I decided to consider becoming a consultant again. So that's full circle, story. that's a yeah. long answer. And yeah, so now, now I'm here at Washburn and McGoldrick and everything I've ever learned. And I don't think now, gosh, was I a job hopper? I think now Gosh, was I doing everything that I could to prepare myself for the role I have now where yep. I'm working with lots of different clients, different size clients, different types of institutions, some that have medical uh, and health components. I am well prepared for the work I'm doing now, and it is a blast. Very cool. So a question about the work. You know, I think that one might suggest if there's a you know, criticism of the advancement space is that, you know, they're always in a campaign mode, right? Whether they're, they're planning for a campaign, they're in a campaign, they're finishing a campaign, you know, whatever it is, it's all sort of in relation to a campaign. Um, 
do you think that that's a good thing? Do you think that every university ought to be in some be operating in some sort of frame of reference around a campaign? And um, yeah, like where do you land on that in terms of how you think about what universities ought to be doing for their campaign cycles? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I, I think um, campaign and the word campaign and the process of campaign, it's just that it's 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 a process for sort of um, punctuating fundraising that's happening with a beginning and an end, right? The beginning of the campaign, the end of the campaign. I do think that institutions should always be thinking about how to raise more money. That that keeps us us all employed, right? <laughs> Jokingly. But I, I don't think that every institution is ready for an actual campaign. I think many institutions are getting themselves ready and we help with, with, with that too, but often they don't have the, the infrastructure and the undergirding to successfully take on a campaign. That doesn't mean, and that's not to say they shouldn't continue to focus on raising more gifts and cultivating more relationships that lead to gifts. But I, I don't think that every institution should be in a campaign only if they're ready. Go ahead, Ryan. <laughs> off, script, off script already. Here, true. So true or false, to be successful as an advancement leader, a chief advancement officer, you need to have successfully started and completed a campaign. I think the answer to that question depends upon the types of institutions one chooses to work in. I there are many in HBCU, for example, who have not had a successful campaign, who have not had a campaign. And yet the, the, the individuals who tend to lead those organizations, they have a lot of great roll up your sleeves, get it done experience. They are good chief advancement officers in those institutions. I think that if one is, is desirous of working in a larger, perhaps more complex institution, then the answer to your question is yes. So there's some sort of level of fundraising that gets you to that street cred level, right? Of campaign success, right? You're saying some schools don't, is the problem and the reason those schools are not ready for a campaign is because what they can raise, the maximum of the amount, isn't a strong enough message for success in a campaign. Is that kind of what you mean? And like to be really successful in leveraging a campaign, it needs to be a dollar amount that wows people. I don't even think it's that, Ryan. I, th- I think that perhaps at some institutions that might be a factor. I, I think that in order to have campaign success, whether it's a $2.5 million campaign or a $2.5 billion campaign, is having the proper infrastructure and undergirding, having the staffing, having the budget, having the volunteer leadership to successfully launch and and move a campaign through all of its phases towards a successful ending. I think all of those things need to be in place. And it doesn't matter what the, the goal of the campaign is. And that it, might be controversial. Some people may very well disagree with me, but that that that's my belief. Yeah. Is there a common pitfall that you've seen that makes an institution not ready? I mean, we look at eight campaign readiness categories, and but is there one common pitfall that people fail to be ready to have in place to be ready to launch a campaign? So I, I think there's a there's a couple that come to mind. In in the HBCU environment, often and even not even just HBCU environment, but smaller institutional environments, sometimes it's overreach for goal. It's looking at a peer or an aspirant peer and saying, well, they did a campaign for, for 10 million. I think we're going to do 15 with no data to support that number. I think that is a common pitfall. Um, And and I've seen that happen with other institutions as as well. And I, I think it's, it's also launching a campaign without having done a feasibility study or an internal readiness assessment. 
because if, if you're an institution and it's a first time campaign, you don't know what you don't know. Yep. And yep. a feasibility study and an internal readiness assessment by um, consultants who, who know what they're doing in the space can help an institution know and learn what they don't know about being successful in a campaign. I'm sure you back to your first point where you, they set an unrealistic goal because a peer has an X and we want to be X plus. Oftentimes it's driven by a president, chancellor, or even by a board member, chair often, who wants to have a big dollar goal under their watch. Have you experienced that? Yes. I, I was talking to a colleague about that uh, just last week. I, there's something that I, I, I've, I've coined as the uh, school of new presidency. It's like these presidents, I don't, I don't know where, where they go or where they, where they like all convene to talk about what's happening at their institutions, probably at conferences, the conferences they go to. And one institutional leader is talking about the campaign that they've undertaken for a hundred million. And then another one is talking about their campaign. And then I think the ones who are new go back to their campuses and they're like, well, I'm a new president. And I heard these other presidents talking about these campaigns. So we must do a campaign and, and double the old one right? <laughs> level. And they don't know about all that goes into getting to their, those present respective presidents goals. So I think it's um, just, just not knowing enough about what it entails and the, the energy and the longevity, because a lot of the presidents I've been seeing more recently, they're not staying in these roles long. And so having, the stick to to stay the stay the distance because campaigns are running anywhere between five and with one of my more recent clients, they're looking at a 10 year campaign. So yep. I think it's, yep. are you going to be there as a, as an institutional leader, as a volunteer leader, as a staffer to stay the course? Yep. The next question I had was about delivering bad, bad news. And I suppose, you know, one piece of bad news you may have to deliver to a university is, you know, you're, you're not ready to uh, raise the dollar amount that you hoped for. And the, that might make that sexy, you know, headline in the, um, in the press about the university. And so boy, have you ever had to deliver that type of news or other sorts of bad news that, you know, the client didn't like to hear as a result of the feasibility st assessments that you've done? No, Ryan, we only deliver cookie cutter great news. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> of course I have. Question, but, uh, I, I suppose I should have had to, I should have just gone to what bad news, right? What was the most, what was the most recent bad news? Yeah, I think, um, gosh, there, there are a myriad of different pieces of bad news that, that we've had to deliver to, to clients. I, I think the, the one that occurs most often is after a feasibility study is, is conducted going back to the client and, and telling the chief advancement officer and often the president that that number that you had us test during the feasibility study, that gazillion dollar goal that you had in mind, your, your donors with whom we spoke and with whom we've done this online survey to find out where they are and supporting that number they, they aren't there yet. And we can't in full confidence support you launching a campaign of that magnitude. But what we can do is help build a bridge with you and be thought partners with you to help you maximize what you can raise now and to help you move forward in moving towards that goal that, that you had in mind and, and telling them this is the number that we see right, right now. And they don't like hearing it, but they usually will, will listen and take our advice. And then we work with them as ongoing counsel to help them stretch as, as far as they can often staying in readiness and helping them do more things that can help prepare them to get to that number. And some, some of it does involve alumni, engagement and, and doing more to engage their alumni and other constituents to uncover more in the pipeline and to help build more confidence in whatever that number is that they aspire to get to. The, the, the notion of a campaign, though, being an internal construct or an external construct is something I think about a lot because 
I often will say something to the effect of you have 100,000 alumni, 90,000 of them are going to have no clue about what this is. 9,000 will have some hint, maybe 900 will have a good idea. And there's like 100 people that are kind of in on it <laughs> that are your alumni board of trustees, alumni board. So the vast majority of the folks out there, it doesn't mean anything to them. What's your response to that? Do you think that's accurate? Do you think it can be a, a more collective thing or how do you how do you think about that? I, I think that that's accurate. And, and what I would say to that is I, I believe that's all the more reason why alumni engagement is so important because for that that group of 900 who are focused on the campaign, it's important for them to focus on the campaign so that an institution can have uh, campaign success. But it's equally important to engage the other alumni, which is a, a vastly you know larger group of alumni to engage them in the life of what is happening at the institution, which may, be connected to the campaign in in annual giving level ways, but may be connected to the campaign in other in other ways. Perhaps it's um, in how students are being supported as a result right. of the campaign. Perhaps it's how students are being supported as as uh, connected to them finding employment after they're no longer students. So I think there's there's many other other ways. So. I think it's important to to do both and to look at it as an overarching umbrella with many components. And now all the components are going to be directly connected to the big campaign. Yep. And and we also are seeing more schools introduce engagement goals publicly in their campaigns where they can, can see I fit in that public goal. And when you see a billion dollar or a hundred million dollar goal, most people don't see themselves, but when you when you say we want to engage 75% of our alumni or uh, Denver's talking about a volunteer goal for their upcoming campaign, that's where you can see yourself in it. And that's where you get to that 90,000 in the example. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I, was, I was found it sort of interesting that there's there is this interesting internal dynamic that takes place that's almost like we are never going to get to our best capabilities from a fundraising perspective unless we announce a campaign because like that allows us to get the in additional mm -hmm. investment in philanthropy that allows us to get new systems in place in order to be get successful. the attention of all the presidents and the board the attention of people yeah. like we, we yeah. can't just do philanthropy really well every year after year we actually have to do it in this camp zone of a campaign and and showcase we can you know, move this thing along a, a trajectory. And I don't know, I just feel like it's an interesting thing that does a lot of internal of, of gathering momentum almost. Mm -hmm. How do you feel that? I, I agree with that, right? And I think there's one important sort of external factor that, that we haven't touched upon. And that is when an institution announces a big campaign or that it's launching a big campaign, the public pays attention as well, not just mm -hmm. the uh, the uh, alumni of that institution, but, but the public at large will often pay attention to the announcement of the big campaign and watching the big gifts that come into a campaign. And sometimes if it's an institution that doesn't have strong brand recognition out in the market, it, it strengthens the brand recognition of the institution when they launch and successfully complete a big campaign. Um, awesome. Maybe Carla, could you share some of the most important, like the most important lesson you've learned from that you would say, if you could summarize into one, something you keep saying to advancement leaders, and then we'll move into our Friday cheer section. Well, I would say for me, it isn't a new lesson, but it's one that I'm reminded of every day. And that is the importance of listening. I've worked with consultants before when I was a chief advancement officer who were absolutely horrible listeners, not taking into account any of my thoughts or any of my knowledge and experience. So I vowed that when I became a consultant, and, and it's not even about, I've always been, I think, a good listener, because I think in order to be a good communicator, you have to be a good listener. So I just think about the importance of listening and using queries as well every day. So even if I'm talking with a client and they're dealing with solving a problem. If I know the answer, 
I, I hold on to it. I listen and ask them a series of, of questions or queries because I believe they're just as smart as I am. And if I lead them down the path through my queries, they will come up with the answer to solving the problem. The answer that's in my head, they come up with it. And then it's us solving it together as thought partners, as opposed to me solving the problem for them. I think that's really good consulting and good working with, with leaders who are just as smart as I am. That's really great. And I, I would totally agree. Um, so let's wrap up the show with our Friday cheers. We, uh, Carla, each week we, we bring to the show a something we're thinking about, or maybe it's an article we've read or a podcast we've listened to. Maybe it's a book, but something that's got our attention. And we try to, maybe sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with advancement. Sometimes it does, but um, we'll, we'll lead it off with you. What, what is your Friday cheers? So I'm reading a, a, a new book. Um, it's not new. It's new to me, but I'm a, I'm a Dan Pink follower. I, I just love everything he, he writes. And so this weekend, in fact, I started reading The Power of Regret. And I don't know if it's going to help me in, in my uh, consulting work. But I find that every book I read, there's some morsel or two or three morsels that, that help me in my work. And so the premise of this book is how throughout our lives, you hear the, the phrase, no regrets. I don't regret anything. Everything that I've done is, is great. But the truth of the matter is, according to Dan Pink, and, and I'm, I'm only about like 30 pages in, that we should have some regrets and we should look back sometimes to think about decisions we made. And the premise is that by doing so, then we begin to hone in on what we value by looking at what we may regret. So that's my my uh, Friday focus. Great. Great I like it. Awesome. Good Friday. Cheers. How about Cheers. you, Chris? My, focus. My, Friday focus would be another way to brand it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Probably have an easier time remembering if it was, if it was an alliteration, right? <laughs> well, cheers, Friday cheers. Yeah, Friday Dan cheers. Pink, the power of regret. Great. We saw him speak at the K Summit this year. He was fantastic. Uh, such a great. In fact, I think thing. that is where I picked up this book, and I'm just right. now having the time to start turning pages. <laughs> you know, six months later, we finally get to read the book. We got. Uh -huh. <laughs> I know that, Joe. It reminds me. Your story reminds me of the uh, somebody getting a tattoo, and it says "No regrets," but "regrets" is spelled wrong, and "no no regrets." It says. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? In this book, the first thirty pages, he references some of those tattoos. Right. That, that people... <laughs> so my, mine's a little more, and I can do it quick. We'll put it links in the in the uh, aftermath uh, of this, but uh, so you can get to them. Mine are pretty practical today. So I have a a client who's got four pretty relatively new staff, new in their career. And they're, and I'm, I'm sort of serving an interim, helping them mentor a little bit. And it occurred to me, there's some basic things they need to learn and some sort of blocking tackling, if you will, in the old expression. And what I found doing a little research was that there are a ton of, of, of resources out there on email, business email best practices, how to send an email, whether it's internally or externally, that's going to get the response and get the reaction, get what you need. Um, and so email best practices have been on my mind all week talking to these folks about it. And I found a great uh, article, Harvard Business Review article that's, you know, five, 10 minute read and then a seven minute video that's complimentary. And it talks about the same principles. We'll put those links in the uh, post about this uh, podcast. And I would encourage everybody to take a listen because I'm pretty good at email. I do it all day long, but I learned a ton of stuff <laughs> listening and watching, reading these two uh, pieces. So uh, I would encourage you to take a look. I it's can't wait to check that out. Yeah, that sounds I'll great. send you both. Well, before you get it right away, I'll send you both the, what I sent to the team uh, uh, at this client uh, to get them going. So I'll send that to you today. We can share that out on our LinkedIn page. And if you're listening to Alumless, but you have not followed our page on LinkedIn, please do so. Good also, part. go ahead and follow the Washburn McGoldrick page. They do a great job with their content as well. Um, my Friday Cheers is on the personal side of things, too. I am... Um, Oh, yours was yours was email, but mine's mine is. I, for those who don't know me that well, I have started working out more in the mornings before uh, the sun comes up. I usually go to the gym at five, three or four days a week, and uh, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. But one of the tools that's helped me with that that I've used is a tool called Fitbod, 
uh, it's an app. And as somebody, as a guy who's never been particularly um, good or learned much about lifting weights uh, to in a way that I'm not going to hurt myself and in a way that kind of helps me as a novice for, you know, lifting weights to see how exercises are done properly to have them counted and so logged and then recommend to you different workouts for different body parts and really sort of allow you to build momentum when it comes to adding strength training to your workouts. So Fitbot is a tool, I think it's like 50 bucks a year that I use that um, for the last two years or so, I've been using it every day, every day that I work out to help me track the, um, the, the weight training that I've been doing. And I feel like more than anything else, it has been great to make sure that I, at 43 years old, that I don't get hurt doing things. I can look at the videos and uh, and still sort of make progress. So anyway, that's my Friday cheers for today. If you're thinking about you want to do more weight training at the gym at all, I found that this tool has been really helpful. The last One more time. Year. What is it called? FitBod? It's called FitBod, which is kind of a lame name to it, but yeah, it really, but, it really, does, it really has you, been helpful. For- a testimony to this fitbot carla i haven't seen ryan in a little while i see him in this little window like this all the time and i he walks off the plane in denver and i'm like whoa man you're looking good he's fit trim and ready to rock and roll so whatever you're doing ryan's working keep going thanks for that tip i'm gonna i'm gonna check out that app and and download it when when we finish i work out but i'm always looking for new new ways to motivate me to do so and to make it more productive in my goals well, that's 100%. I've really felt like as a tool to help me do exercise better, it has been one of the most valuable ones. So I thought I would mention it. Cool. All right. Well, uh, great show. Th- Carla, thank you for so much for joining us. We'll be back. Uh, a special episode in your feeds a week from today with Kim and Fonte from Syracuse. But uh, for Ryan and Chris and Carla, so long until next time. Thank you so much for listening thank you to so Alumni. Thanks. Well done. It was fun.